Well, a man was talking to his family doctor. Uh, he's concerned, Doc, I think my wife might be going deaf. Uh, I'm not sure. We haven't talked about it, but I'm worried. Well, the doctor says, here's something you can try on her to test her hearing. Stand some distance away from her and ask her a question. If she doesn't answer, move a little closer and ask again. Keep doing this until she really answers. Then you'll be able to tell just how hard of hearing she really is. So the man goes home and decides to try what his doctor recommends, and he comes in the living room. He can see his wife working at the kitchen counter through the doorway. And so she says, honey, what's for supper? He doesn't get an answer. Uh, honey, what's for supper? After moving a few steps closer, he repeats. Still no answer. He asks her several more times until he's standing just a few feet away from her and repeats, honey, what's for supper? Finally, she answers, for the 11th time I said, we're having meatloaf. The simplest joke story is the best. Uh, today, in our series on communion, we're talking about what's for supper. What is it that we are consuming? What are we, what are we having at this meal? Remember the last time that the Lord had a meal with his disciples in his earthly life, um, that supper was the occasion for our remembrance and celebration of Holy Communion. We, we sometimes call it the Last Supper, and so sometimes we call this the Lord's Supper. Well, what's, what's for supper? So I want to think about uh, that uh, topic today. And um, in terms of uh, body, bread, cup, and uh, grace. So first of all, uh, body. First of all, you need to know that uh, the United Methodist Church welcomes everyone uh, to the table of the Lord, including persons who may understand uh, the actual dynamics uh, of the body differently than we do. Um, we believe this is a table where Christ the Lord is the host, and everyone who hears Christ's invitation and responds with faith is welcome to come. So the body. This uh, wonderful story of Emmaus is probably uh, one of the first times in which the disciples started making connections and understanding the way in which Jesus could be powerfully alive and present with them, although he had died and had really died. So what does it mean to say he is powerly, powerfully present? Well, I, I often uh, find that I, I try to kind of define us uh, 
a little bit in, dis in differentiation from other ways of understanding it. But I have to give you a word of caution. Uh, and I'll tell you why I got this caution that I need to give. Uh, I was having uh, a meal here at church a, a while back, and there were folks present with me who were uh, Catholic, who were um, uh, talking, and we talked about differences in our traditions, and uh, I don't know how communion came up, and, and they said uh, that they uh, understood from their priest that we, we thought communion was just a symbol, and they thought communion was uh, the body and blood of Christ. And, and I, I have to say that even though it was just a meal, I wanted, I almost jumped out of my skin because that's not the way I understand what we believe, but it is a way that others might characterize it. And um, so I wanna be careful in giving a, a caveat. I may not describe the uh, traditions of another faith tradition as accurately or as fully as they would. But roughly, uh, Roman Catholics believe a, a doctrine uh, sometimes called transubstantiation, where the bread and the wine are by the consecrating words of the priest are transformed into actual body and actual blood of Christ. And um, it's one of the reasons why, and it depends from congregation to congregation whether or not this is enforced, but it's one of the reasons why people who are not uh, Roman Catholic are not always invited to receive those elements in that setting. Uh, it's not meant to be disrespectful in any way or divisive. It's simply a reflection that others may not appreciate fully what they believe is present in the elements. And um, so I respect that. Uh, but the United Methodist understanding uh, is not just, these are just symbols. And it's not that they're just reminders of something that happened in the past. We kind of describe our way of understanding what's for supper as the real presence of Christ in the experience of Holy Communion. Now that may sound like we so often do in Methodist circles, like a uh, loosey-goosey, namby-pamby, not real answer answer. But I think in the story on the road to Emmaus, in subsequent events, I think there's a good biblical basis for understanding body of Christ as a holy mystery. And, and being, as we are, kind of agnostic about trying to go down to the molecular level of what it is. Remember with me, the disciples are walking on a road outside of Jerusalem. They are talking with one another and trying to process the death of this mighty prophet, as they describe him. And also trying to process 
the news that there's been an empty tomb and messengers saying that he's risen. And as they're walking, it says, Jesus started walking with them. But even though they were among his followers, they did not recognize him as he walked and talked with them. Now, to me, that says that when they're talking about body, it may be a little bit different than what we think of as an earthly body. It says their eyes were kept from recognizing him, so perhaps that was going on. But we might wonder, was Jesus' risen spiritual body different than his earthly lifetime body. And then as the story goes on, we learn that he, he's getting ready to leave them um, after he's kind of said, well, this is how it all works out. He laid out the story of how this prophet uh, fit into the whole of God's plan and how his death and empty tomb and resurrection were part of what God meant to happen. He gave it a larger context. And then it says he seems like he's going on and they ask him to come in and they beg him to stay. And he goes into the house, not his house, but he sits at the table and plays the role of host by picking up the bread, giving God thanks for the bread, breaking it and giving it to him just as he had at that last supper. And their eyes were opened and they realized who he was. But then he disappeared from their sight, just like that. If we'd kept on going with the story, we would have learned that Jesus once again uh, comes among them while they're talking about this with others and offers them peace and then disappears again. So I think this biblical way of understanding the risen body of Christ as being something elusive, very real, yet not capable of definition with confidence is very much in keeping with what we call real presence of Christ in the sacrament and what is often referred to through United Methodist uh, uh, tradition, this holy mystery, how Christ really does become made known to us in the breaking of the bread and sharing of the cup. Christ is truly present And you know, I think in some ways, communion is meant to focus our awareness of how it is that we identify God at work in the world in our lives. And for me, God is kind of like that. I don't always recognize God's hand at the time when it's right there at work. It doesn't always immediately seem to me that God is is bringing about some new awareness or new situation for me. I don't recognize it. I can't capture it until later. 
Maybe you have had that experience too. You look back and you go, oh, God was there. Maybe it even looked like God was there through other people or situations and circumstances that certainly had no knowledge that they were the presence of Christ for you. So I like, I like saying real presence, but I can't specify the details. So that's body. And by the way, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul then says to the Christians gathered, you are the body of Christ. But that one's for October. Bread. Now, Jesus' last supper was, we learned last time, a Passover meal, which means that the bread that Jesus used would have been unleavened bread. Why unleavened bread? Because it was part of remembering the situation in which they, uh, by God's intervention, had the ability to get up and escape out of slavery, but they had to do it quickly, and they had to grab the provisions as they could, and they were not time to leaven the bread. So unleavened bread was part of the remembrance ceremony about um, the service in the service of Passover. So sometimes uh, some churches use unleavened bread. Uh, some use pita bread, uh, which maybe would have been similar, but uh, the really, really most unleavened bread that you can get are wafers, uh, those wafers that dissolve on your tongue and, and um, are oftentimes used for, for communion. Uh, we don't, we do not uh, specify that the bread needs to be unleavened or leavened. In fact, in, in many ways in the, in the document, this holy mystery that was uh, commissioned by our, our, our denomination, they suggest that it's helpful for, uh, for congregations to use bread that would be like the bread from their home, like what you would use every day. Because there's not such a huge difference between the way God provides for us and God's gracious forgiveness and love and presence in Christ and the way God provides for our material needs, the way God provides with the gift of creation. And those provisions happen every day. It's easy to take them for granted, but somehow having communion be presented with bread that's like what we might use on our tables can help us make the connection that God's grace, although extraordinary and intentional and present in the sacrament, is also present throughout our daily lives. We try to break the separation between holy and secular and say, this shows us that God is present everywhere. It might even make us more appreciative of every gift of food that we have, which surely comes at least indirectly from the giver of every good gift. And the scripture that uh, Lowell shared from the story of the Exodus shows that God does provide and care about material needs too. 
the provision of manna in the wilderness. Um, uh, don't know exactly what that looked like, but maybe the description was a little bit like wafers, and that's another good connection to using communion wafers. But the important thing is that God reaches out to us, body, mind, and spirit, to provide. And the sacrament is a special experience that helps us appreciate God's love for us in all of life. I, uh, I know that I read just a short article that recently the Roman Catholic Church gave a uh, declaration on the question of whether or not uh, communion wafers could be uh, gluten-free, and uh, the ruling was that they could be really low gluten, but they had to have some amount of gluten in them. Uh, and I, I, I news article for sure didn't go into the theological background and reasoning for that. Um, but for us, uh, the caring of being able to meet people's needs are given flexibility so that uh, we have gluten-free wafers if you need that, and maybe somewhere down the road we'll have different options even more. But for us, the bread is bread. For the cup, now you know that uh, if you've been other places, churches, many of them, perhaps most of them, have wine in that cup. Uh, when Jesus lifted the cup and said it was the cup of the new covenant in his blood, uh, I suppose that's why we always use red wine. I don't think we really know for sure if it was red wine at the time, but we use red wine because it is that, that color that of blood. And, and blood, as we talked about before, is a, a part of a tradition of ratifying a promise. Ratifying a promise. And when Jesus talked about the new covenant in his blood, he was pulling on words from the prophet Jeremiah in the 31st chapter, talking about the new covenant that God would make with people, where it would be relational, where God's law would be written on our hearts, where we would know who God is, even as God already knows us, and where we would be assured of God's perpetual offer of forgiveness not just forgiveness, but the promise to not remember our sins anymore. Well, United Methodists uh, are from the kind of tradition of the Church of England, and John Wesley, our founder, would have had communion wine. And in fact, he uh, apparently really thought communion was an incredibly meaningful way that Christian believers are fed in their life and growth and awareness of God and God's will for our lives. And so he had communion every day um, uh, in his holy club with others um, at Oxford. And he believed that it was one of the important means of grace and the ways we grow in God. Later, the Methodist Church uh, was uh, part of social movements that were related to temperance, which was kind of seen as a human rights issue. Uh, back in the, in the context, uh, men were largely the main breadwinners, and they were also the people with all the property rights. And when men uh, 
took their winnings and their salaries and went to the bar and drank it all away, and the wives and children were oppressed by that. It was seen as a human rights issue that, that temperance was promoted, um, and that was part of our history and our tradition, and United Methodists um, took up the cause along with George Welch, who was a United Methodist layman, and our communion wine became unfermented grape juice, and it is to this day. And uh, even though there's something wonderful about the symbolism of wine that gets a, a little bit ecstatic and ecstatic and heady, there's um, something about realizing God's love that's ecstatic and heady. Uh, nevertheless, we've stuck with uh, unfermented grape juice in solidarity for people for whom consumption of wine might be a problem, people who are on a journey of sobriety. And um, if you go to uh, services where they have wine in Episcopalian churches, sometimes you'll see that they drink all from a common cup. The wine's strong enough that it disinfects all the germs. Um, we do not drink from the common cup because we don't have anything disinfecting that rim. So oftentimes, we serve by intinction and invite people to dip into the cup. And finally, grace. Communion is an opportunity to re-experience the power of God's presence and God's forgiveness. A forgiveness that is not really like ours. I know there have been times because I'm forgetful that I forgive people and I also forget what they've done, but that's usually because I'm forgetful and not, not because I'm God. God's love forgives to the point of forgetting, taking away the obstacle altogether. So when we walk down the aisle to communion, we might think about processing together God's incredible kind of offer to us and celebrate that. Real presence through the cup, the words of institution, remembering the story of salvation as we do when we say the great thanksgiving together. And now let me invite you to hear the words of invitation that accompany this. All you who truly and earnestly repent of your sin and intend to walk henceforth in God's ways, seeking to live at peace with God and one another, draw near and take this sacrament to your comfort, for it is a real gift of a living God who sets up the table and opens it up to all. Amen.